turn as we continue our study in Revelation to Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And when you have found your place, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, which one, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Reading the word. Amen. You may be seated. Quite the image that, that we have going on here is as the Apostle John is, is given a vision and is called up to heaven. This is that time in Revelation as we go chapter by chapter. It gets a little more difficult. We start to see a lot of a lot of symbols and, and imagery. You know, the letters to the seven churches are pretty plain forward. But now we have here, and we can understand the, the words that, that Calvin once spoke, that Revelation is not the hardest book to understand. It's just the easiest to misunderstand. So at this point, we're, we're going to be reflecting, of course, on Revelation, but looking back at a lot of, a lot of the other scriptures that, that will help shed some light on what's going on. Scriptures such as the prophet Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and all throughout the New Testament. I think it's a, a, a good good point, you know, as, as we read through the words, to, to consider the, the life of Moses at this moment. As we know, Moses was, was, was born a Hebrew slave, but to spare his life, he was placed in a river, and he was, he was found by, by a princess in Egypt, and he would be raised, raised as an Egyptian prince. And he had everything in the world at that time that a, a young man could ever want. But he traded it all away once he found out who he was. Once he found out he was the child of the living God, a child of the Hebrew slaves. And he, and he took things into his own hands, and he went before God, before God told him to move. And he killed a man, and he is exiled for this. And he lived a harsh life out in the wilderness. But at the age of 80 years old, he is sent back. He has an encounter with God, and it changed his life forever. He goes back, and through the mighty power of of God, he sets the, the people, the Hebrew people that are enslaved in Egypt free. And they go into the wilderness. And when they go into the wilderness, 
for people like much of us who we've, we've encountered God, we've had these wonderful things that go on, but what happens when they get out in the wilderness? They start to complain a little bit. So this food that we're eating today, it's not quite the grand feast we used to have. So we didn't have to work so hard for our food. We didn't have to depend on God for our food. And they go forward and they go forward. And here we have this leader, Moses, who's had this encounter with God. And he's pleading with God, how do I leave, lead such a people that are so stubborn? And what happens with Moses? What does he ask for? Does God ask that, does Moses ask of God that he would change the people? No, he doesn't ask that. What does he ask to see? He asks to see God's glory. Because when you have encountered God's glory, God's holiness, all else that you will see, you'll see that all else is worthless. It is God and God alone that is worth, worth following after. And that is what we're going to encounter in the throne room in heaven with John. John was having a hard life. It would have been very easy for John to want to go back to his life as a fisherman. At this point in time, we find John is a has been enslaved on the island of Patmos, where he is in the, the spirit on the Lord's day. And he, he has been given these letters to these seven churches, one in which he was a pastor of. It would have been hard to send those letters, as it would be hard for, for me to, to give you rebuke, because I love you. But like I have to, like, like John has to, rebuke have, has to be given when God gives it. And so he sends these seven letters. And these seven letters aren't just sent to any old churches. These seven letters, there was hundreds of churches at this time. There's not just seven. God chose these specific seven churches for a very specific reason. They would represent the church throughout the history of time. And if we were honest with ourselves, the period of time we find ourselves is in the Laodicean church. And I want to reread a kind of a summary of what those letters said to the churches. In those seven churches, the, the first one, Ephesus, he said, Jesus said to John, they have lost their first love. How painful would have been for John. That was his church. His church had lost their first love. I ask you today, have you lost your first love? Have you lost that fire and that zeal you once had for Jesus on that day that he saved you? Have maybe you become like Moses out in the wilderness and, and it's, you're looking back and remembering the good old days and you're wanting that fire again. Ask to see the glory of God. He will re reinstall that fire in your heart. And then we have in Smyrna those that were about to be killed for their faith that were going through great persecution. Husbands, wives, sons, and daughters. That would not have been easy to face. There was false teaching in Pergamum that they were being tempted with. In Thyatira, they were tolerating a false prophetess, and she had led them into sexual immorality and idolatry. In Sardis, the church is absolutely dead. Go on to Philadelphia. Finally, we find a church that gets no rebuke, but they are being heavily persecuted. But God tells them that they will not go through the tribulation if they endure. And finally, in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the church that is neither hot nor cold, but is literally about to be spit out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus. You don't want to be that church. You don't want to be that Christian. When, when, when the trumpets sound and we're called up to heaven, you don't want to be that Christian that's still sitting down here in the pews wondering why all your friends haven't shown up. You don't want to be lukewarm. The lukewarm will be left behind. At this point in, in Re Revelation, 
we see the completion of the church age. The end of chapter 3, you see the end of the church age. You will not read about the church on the earth again till the concluding chapters of Revelation. Why is that? Why is that? Because of the rapture. Very similar to Noah's day. Noah built the ark as God had commanded him. And Noah warned people for 120 years. And then the floods came. Noah and his family got on the ark. Nobody else decided to get on. God sealed the ark and they were lifted up above the wrath that was coming. There is wrath coming. Some of us are ready to, to, to get up out of the way. Some of us are not. Some of us are fooling ourselves in our hearts thinking we're living right with God. When we're living in both worlds, we're, we're pretending that we're worshiping God, but we're also worshiping Balaam at the same time. We're worshiping that money. We're worshiping those idols in our lives, whatever they may be. Before we enter the throne room up in heaven, I want to reread part of chapter 1, because it gives us so much guidance throughout Revelation. Starting chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Understand why John was enslaved. Not just because he was a good guy or didn't pay his taxes or something like that. It's because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is a slave on Patmos. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me with a loud voice like a trumpet. This is important saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice who was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His, fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like that roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key of death and Hades. Verse 19, this is very important for our study. Write therefore the things that you have seen. Those that are, that was to the churches. Those are the things that he's seen that are. And those that are about to take place after this. Chapter 4 is what we're at now. The things that are about to take place after this. After the completion of the church. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see very clearly that this is a vision given to John, and he is called to go up. He's called to write those things that he has seen and to tell of the things that are yet to come. When we read chapter 1, we should have an awe of Jesus Christ that, that strikes us. You see, John, this is a man who walked with Jesus, that knew Jesus as teacher, rabbi, Messiah, Lord and God. And when he encounters Jesus Christ in his full glory, he falls down to his face as if he was dead. What will you do when you are in the presence of Jesus Christ? We love to sing, sing that song, I can only imagine. Will we dance for Jesus? Or in all will we be still? 
John was more than still. John was as if he were dead. You will truly be in awe, and you will understand what the word awesome really means. One who inspires awe and trembling. That is what John encountered. And now, as we go on, and are about to encounter what he encounters in the throne room, we, we must first get a clear understanding of, of what the rapture is and what it means. Why does it happen? Because God's wrath is about to be unleashed. It is going to be beautiful. It is going to be glorious. It's going to be terrifying. There's no way around that. It is going to be gl glorious and beautiful for us that, that get to be with the Lord in heaven. If you are still here on earth, it will be scary. Scarier than anything you can ever imagine. Worse than any horror movie Hollywood could ever dream up of. Satan in his wildest schemes has not imagined what lays ahead for him on this earth. Let us read now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen? Amen. So all of you that have lost loved ones, encourage yourself with these words. You will see them again if they are brothers and sisters. They actually get a head start on you. If Christ comes today, you will meet them in the air with your Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. You should rejoice. You have hope. The name of our church is New Hope. Our new hope is Jesus Christ. He is the first in the resurrection. And our loved ones will be resurrected. And they will have perfect bodies. No more will you ever have to worry about that damnable word cancer. It will be gone. No more lung disease. No more heart disease. We'll not have to worry about the old cranks of this body. It will be utterly gone forever. Amen. But why does this happen? Why does Christ come for his church? There are many reasons. I will just give you a few today. because We will go into some of those in the future studies of Revelation. The first we can see from, from Noah's day. Noah was warned, was warned that, that judgment was coming. As I said earlier, he preached for 120 years. And as I've joked here, sometimes it, as... As preachers, we, we preach and we preach and we preach and we don't always see the fruit of that preaching. Noah preached for 120 years and had exactly zero converts. So any of you that have been working hard in ministry or been, been doing things in your life and you just don't see the outcome yet, trust God for the outcome. Amen. Noah did. And he brought God glory. He, he, when he entered that ark, and when God sealed it up, he was lifted above the waters of wrath, the waters of judgment. You will be lifted above the, the wrath of God. You'll be lifted up above the earth that will be judged. The same way Christ, you will remove his bride. Church, you are the bride of Jesus Christ. He loves you. Even more than I love you. He loves you for you are his bride. Husbands, I want you to think about your bride and how much you love them what you would do for them. 
Know that Christ loves you infinitely more. And a day soon is coming. And it's alluded to here in John 14, 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. For not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Jesus, as the groom, has a very specific pur purpose. I don't want you to get this idea that Jesus is up in heaven, just twiddling his thumbs, not doing anything right now. He is watching over the church that we've seen in chapters 1 through 3. But he is also preparing a place for those that are part of his bride. And he is going to prepare a place and bring them to his father's house. You see a lot of the Hebrew marriage customs going here. And we could go into other verses such as the, the parable of the ten virgins. But the, the idea is there that, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his bride. And when the father says the place is ready, he's going to tell his son to get up and go get his bride. We should rejoice and long for that day. You know exactly how many prophecies are left to be fulfilled until the rapture? I've studied scriptures over and over. How many? Take a guess. Zero. The next major event on, on God's timeline is the rapture. That should both give you great joy and it should also bring terror to your heart. Because we have loved ones who are not yet saved. We have family members who are not yet saved, who are not yet part of the bride. And when he comes for his bride, they will be left to deal with this world and to deal with the wrath of God. The second reason we must acknowledge is that God is absolutely holy. You cannot be in the presence of the Father without being holy. And Christ is in the process of going through our sanctification with us, making us holy. But we cannot go in these bodies we now dwell, for they are not holy. And that's why something has to happen. Something has to change. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body cannot inherit the kingdom. The body you are in now cannot inherit the kingdom. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Understand when the scripture is talking about sleep, it's not talking about going to bed and having a good night rest. It is talking about death. It is talking about those who have died. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death will be defeated. Now the question of why we must answer as we look in first look back at First Thessalonians is, is God gives us a seven step process to the rapture. It may take place in the twinkle of an eye, but there is a, a process good that goes place, and I, I want to go through it now as we so we can look at what's going on in chapter four of Revelation. First the Lord shall descend from heaven. Amen. We long for that day. We long to be able to look up out our, our windows at home or as we're driving or as we're sitting here 
We're worshiping God. We long to look up and see the Lord in the skies. He will come with a shout. The Greek word here is used that of a commander of a military leader who comes out of his chief's commander's tent and issues a command. This, this word is a military command. There is purpose in what is going on here. I want you to think about our, our military. The United States military is very cautious and very good at, at trying not to cause civilian casualties. We don't want to cause casualties to our allies, to our own troops. So I want you to understand that the wrath of God is a, going to be a precision military strike on the earth. But first they need to get out of the way the allies, the church. They need to remove them out of the way so they will not be harmed. Third, we see the voice of an archangel. Angels are often used for God's plan and emotion. And I want you to be real clear. There's only one archangel listed in the entire Bible. It is Michael. Michael is listed as a warrior. He is listed as the one who kicks Satan out of heaven. You do not want to mess with Michael. And he is the leader of the Lord's army. Amen? Amen. He is the one that, that will issue the command. He is the one that will kick off the rapture. So you have no fear as we're entering into heaven. You are escorted into heaven by, by Jesus Christ and Michael the Archangel themselves. It will be a beautiful, wonderful town, time. We see forth is with the trump of God. The sound of the trumpet was used as a summons either to battle or to worship. So what are we being summoned to? We are being summoned to worship. You don't go into the throne room of God just half-heartedly. Understand the throne room of God is is looked at as, as a, a temple similar to that of the Old Testament. Fifth, it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. And maybe in a twinkling of an eye, a nanosecond before us, but God has not forgotten those who, is, who have loved him and who have ultimately given up their lives for him. All those who have, who have called Jesus as Lord that are part of the church will be raptured. Now, I want to be clear, this does not speak of the Old Testament saints being raptured. This is a, a separate point in time, and we'll get that to that as we go ahead. But the rapture is for the church. It is for the bride of Jesus Christ. Sixth, those that, that are alive, that's you and I, that are left shall together be with them caught up in the clouds. And what, what I want us to, to focus in on is that we shall be with the Lord forevermore, for all eternity. So when, when you're worried about seven years down the line, when we get through the tribulation, Jesus Christ is about to come back, and we see him with holy angels. Guess who's with him? You are, for you will be with him forevermore, for all eternity. And finally, the seventh step, we meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him. We will go into the very throne room of God. So now let's look at the account we have of Revelation 4 with John. Heaven has an open door, and John is called up to enter in, as we will be called up in the rapture. There is a voice like a trumpet. It is a sudden event. It comes at the completion of chapter 3, the completion of the church age. It introduces us to the throne room of heaven. It also, and terrifyingly so, signals the beginning of God's judgment on the world. This moment would be the first raindrops that fell in Noah's day. The world would look around and they'd be puzzled and confused, not really realizing, well, what's ahead? But we might note in Revelation, there are four doors we will encounter. The door of service we saw in Revelation 3.8. The door that, that Jesus would open for the church of Philadelphia. The door closed against Christ in the church of Laodicea. 
It is not a good thing when Jesus has to tell a church, I'm standing at your door knocking, let me in. May your door always be open to Jesus Christ. Because a day will come that those who have opened the door to him, they will have a door open to them in heaven, as John did. Of course, that is the third door, the door we see in heaven. And later there will be a door out of heaven in Revelation 19. But that we are ways off from that. So I want us to, to get into the throne room. I want you to imagine being before the throne room of God. That is what you hear. But that is where the light, our sound effects of godly thunder can only go so far. That should startle you a little bit. What does thunder and lightning around the throne symbolize in Scripture? It symbolizes about the rain? No. Brother David? Judgment. It symbolizes judgment. And I want to be real clear who is sitting on the throne. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is not Jesus. This is the Father. He is sitting on the throne and thunder and lightning are coming out. He is pronouncing judgment. And there's something very terrifying in his right hand, but we will get to that next week. But I want us to look at what we see in the throne room of God. We see the, the Ancient of Days has taken his seat in this temple. All around him, we, we see seven flames of fire, seven lamps, if you will. This represents the Holy Spirit. It's curious that the Holy Spirit is now in heaven, isn't it? Where's the Holy Spirit right now? It's in us. It's here on the earth. What is going to happen when the church is raptured? The Holy Spirit goes up with the church. And so you have the Father surrounded by the Spirit. And then around that, we're going to encounter all kinds of wonderful things that John gives us great description of. But I want to touch on the Spirit a little bit. These seven flaming torches, these are the Spirit is often described as fire. From the day of Pentecost to the holy fire that burns inside of us, all as believers. In, in this age, the age of grace that we now dwell, the Holy Spirit is represented to us in Scripture by a dove. Something gentle and sweet. In the days of tribulation, the Holy Spirit is a fire. A fire of judgment. Holy, yes, but I would not describe the Holy Spirit as sweet to those who are on the earth. I would remind you what, what Christ has said. All those who blaspheme the Father will be forgiven. All those who blaspheme the Son will be forgiven. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. It is the one sin recorded in all of Scripture you are to never do. There's no going back from that. What is that? What has the Holy Spirit been testifying to since Pentecost? That the Son of God has come to save the world, that he has taken upon the wrath of God and has died for our sins and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and that there is no other name, no other name but Jesus, that we can be saved. And those who reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you die in that sin, you will die and you will experience a very real fire in hell. I want us to see the, the absolute holiness. As John goes on, he describes, he describes the, 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 the glory of the Father with precious gems. Jasper is clear as stone, speaking of God's purity. 
He goes on and says, sardine is red. Speaking of God's wrath and judgment, an emerald is a green, a color associated with grace and mercy. All of these stones were found on the, the beautiful breastplate of the high priest. So understand the imagery that John is seeing of the Father as a high priest who has the right to judge, who is holy and true. Around, around the throne we find this emerald colored rainbow. This should naturally take us back to, to the chapter in Genesis, chapter 9, when God makes his covenant with mankind and nature not to destroy the water again, the world again with water. Imagine God on the throne, all around him, he has this rainbow reminding him of his covenant as lightning and thunder flash out of his wrath ready to be poured out. He is, he is waiting with grace for us to pour out his wrath on this earth, but he sees the sign of his covenant to, to remind the, the promise that he has with the world. He will never again flood the world in judgment. But judgment is still coming. It will not be by water this time, but by fire. As, as we look and we see this, we should see a sign of mercy and grace. Noah saw only an ark in the sky, while John saw the complete rainbow around the throne. What we see is God's mercy. But even as we see it today, it's incomplete in our vision, for we see through a, a glass darkly. But when we get to heaven, when we get to that throne room, we will see holy. We will see completely the, the rainbow encircling the Father. We hear the mighty majesty of that, that thunder that's rumbling. But as we also look around at, at the other places, we see the elders are enthroned. 24 seats for the elders. Now, we, we could go into speculation, who may, they, may these be? I've heard, heard all kinds of theories. Maybe they're the prophets. There was 12 major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Could it be the prophets? It's not the prophets. Could it be angels? It's not angels. No time in Scripture are angels ever given crowns. When we see from, from Paul, he tells us that, that when we go to be in glory, we will be above the angels. So could they be Old Testament saints? Could they be David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Scripture tells us no. Quite clearly in with the uh, prof, prophet Daniel, what, what we see is he has this ma, uh, majestic vision of the throne room. And he sees the one seated on the throne. And he sees 24 chairs. But what is missing in those chairs? The elders have not yet taken their place. Why have they now taken their place? Because the church has been called home. These are 24 elders. They represent the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that are encircled around the throne. We are the ones who will cast our crowns down. You'll be given glorious things by God. A glorious crown. But in comparison with the glory of God, you will treat it as a rose ready to be cast at the feet of God. You will not consider it something worthy to be adorned around your head, but be something worthy to be thrown at the very feet of our Lord. So we look at the objects before the throne. We see a sea of glass, truly a heavenly temple similar to the Old Testament. We have the seven lamps that, that are represented by the seven branch lampstand in the Old Testament. The sea of glass like the laver, and the throne to the Ark of the Covenant where God reigned in glory. In Revelation 6, we'll see that, the, that there is an altar of sacrifice in heaven. 
and in chapter 8 that there is an incense altar. And we see that these 24 elders are representative of the priests. In the Old Testament temple, there was, there was the same 24 chairs for the, the priests for the year. Two from each tribe. And we, we encounter these, these living creatures and cherubims that are embroidered on the veils of, of the priests. And then finally we get to the point that I know my Wednesday night prayer group really wants to know, what are these four living creatures? It's quite, quite mysterious. You have these creatures with eyes in the front and behind. With ones like a, we have these different images. One's like a man, one's like an eagle, one's like a lion. You know, we wonder what, what is going on here. These are some very weird looking creatures as the word describes. I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read to you starting in verse 8. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. When every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall any flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall be never again become a flood to the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all that flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of my covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh of the earth. So as we look, God makes a covenant with mankind. One of these creatures has the face of a man. To the fowls, the birds of the air, one of these creatures is like an eagle. To the cattle, to the wild beasts. We see each one of these creatures is a representative of creation. We can look and see they have six wings. They are indeed angels. But they are angels that, that represent God's promise to creation. As we look around, we can go back to Isaiah and Ezekiel and see encounters with these beasts. The eyes represent their, their intelligence. And as, as we, we look around, and, and they are the ones who say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I want you to understand this phrase. This is not just like the, these creatures saying, you know, you're a really, really, really good person. That is not the type of phrase that's used in here. When they're saying holy, holy, hum, holy, this is a system in the Greek language that, that they use numbers. So what they're saying is holiness, perfection, infinity, eternity, whatever kind of word you want to use, times that by holiness, times it again by holiness. So they're saying the one who is holy times holy times holy. They're saying we do not have the words to describe how holy this God is. How righteous, how just, how good God is. We do not simply have the words. And why is creation, why are these angels that represent creation crying out this? Romans 8, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All of creation is groaning for its redemption. They are groaning to see the, the sons and daughters of Adam to be saved. So that God's wrath can be poured out on the earth and all the corruption can be put to death. And so that new heaven, that new earth, that new creation that is promised will be given. That is what the, what the angels that are, that are enthroning the, the throne of the Father are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We should be really focused on that is to come, that great and dreadful day. A great day for us, dreadful for all that remain. And that day, and the church responds, the 24 elders respond. We respond by saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and, and by your will they existed and were created. We have this stage that is now set. The church has been taken to heaven, has been raptured. The Lord is on the throne. All of heaven praises him and awaits the outpouring of his wrath. Think about that for a moment. All those who, who praise God, all those that give glory to God, all those who testify to the goodness of God have been taken up to heaven. What do you have left here on earth? What is left? We have all the, those who have rejected God. We have all those who say, God, you didn't create all this. This was a random chance. Who have rejected God in all their ways and all in their heart created idols, made themselves out to be God or made their country out to be God, or their political party. They are the ones who will be left. They will be the ones who will incur the wrath of God. Those who think they can twist the scripture to fit, fit what they want it to say. That is the ones who will be receiving the very wrath of God. And I want you to see in this, this picture of holiness that we have around the throne with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the, the angels and then the church all around on every side, giving God glory and praise and honor forever and forever and forever. And what do they all agree on? It is time for wrath to be poured out. This may sound a little Old Testament like you, because you've lived in the age of grace and you've, you've come to love and experience it. But a loving God is a just God. And the world cannot go on forever mocking God. It will incur the wrath of God. God has offered to you this day His Son, Jesus Christ. We do not yet see Jesus in the throne room, do we? We do not yet see Jesus in the throne room. God has offered Him up for you. He's offered Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to save you from the wrath to come. Because Jesus Himself, the reason we are able to have grace, the reason we are able to pray out of Father, that we are able to pray to the throne room of the Father and to be heard is because we have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. The very wrath of God has been poured out on the Son on the cross. He experienced our wrath. The reason we have grace is because our penalty has already been paid. We can accept Jesus and receive that free gift of salvation or we can go on rejecting Him. And if you reject Him, you will receive the wrath rightly due to you. But you also see receive wrath that is given even more fully 
because you have rejected the only Son of God. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And you will be here to endure the full wrath of God poured out from the beginning of time. God is slow to wrath. Praise God for that. Praise God that he offers you salvation and he offers it to your family and your friends. The time is short. Don't take it lightly. You've been given a mission, church. And too many of us, we sit on our hands and don't go about that mission. That mission was not just for the apostles, not just for the early church. That mission was to go into all the earth, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when that mission is complete, Jesus will return for his bride. No man, woman, or child will ever be able to stand before that throne room and say, Nobody ever told me about Jesus. I didn't know. We will all be without excuse. And we will all stand before God's holy throne. Do not despise His grace today. Do not reject His Son. Church, we are indeed blessed. God is holy and Christ is holy. The Spirit is holy and they surround the church. Even now as we read through these chapters, in chapter 1 we encounter the holiness of the Son. In chapter 4 we encounter the holiness of the Father encompassing around in chapters 2 and 3 the, the church. And this is what we encounter. A day very soon the church will be complete. It will be called home to be up in heaven. And God will once again focus like a laser on the apple of his eye. The ones he made a covenant promise to, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're going to see great and terrible things happen to them. You're going to see two prophets rise up. You're going to see God seal 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. God has not forgotten his promises. And you will see at the end of that tribulation, the heir to the throne of David, Jesus Christ himself, will descend and take up his rightful place as king forever from Jerusalem. And we will be his bride, his only bride. It's going to be great and glorious. But you have to become part of the bride now. You don't get to do it during the, the tribulation. You don't get to do it at, after Christ has returned. The time for you to do it is now. We need, to, we need to be careful that we are not slack. We need to be careful that we do not take it for granted. As I said earlier, it would have been easy for Moses to want to go, go back to, to Egypt. And I know many of us, we've, we've been in our walk for a long time, and maybe you're like, I'm tired. It's hard. Yes, it's hard being a Christian. It was not easy for Jesus. And he said, if they're willing to do this to your Lord, what, how much more will they do it for, to you? I consider ourselves very blessed. We live in a country where we don't really have very much persecution. People call us names and make fun of us. It's playground persecution. I don't, I don't really consider that persecution. There are, the church all around the world is being martyred. We pray very little for it. We know very little about it. We have yet to experience that. But God is doing amazing things. He is rising up churches and nations who forbid churches to meet. In Iran and China, you see the church growing like wildfire. But what do we have here in the United States? We have a lukewarm church. A church that is focused on entertaining and not making disciples. In the coming weeks, 
as we go through Revelation, I'm going to speak the vision that God has given to me for this church. Some of you will not like it very much because it means being a real disciple as Jesus called his disciples. I remind you, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he had 120 disciples following him. He didn't have thousands. Because following Jesus is not easy. And the moment things don't get easy, we find out who the real disciples are and who aren't his disciples. Those who are part of the church of Laodicea and those who are part of the church of Philadelphia. I remind you the promise given to Philadelphia. If you endure till the end, you will not go through the tribulation. You will not go through that flood like Noah didn't have to go through the flood. The church in Laodicea, they don't really know him. They have shut the door to him. And they will go through that tribulation. I want us all to, to think about the glory of God in that throne room. I want you to think about that encounter that you first had with Jesus. I've prayed you've had that encounter. And if you've not had that encounter, I invite you down now. The reality is when you experience the holiness of God, it, it should bring about a, a feeling, a, a desire inside of you that makes you realize you are not holy. You are not righteous. You are, you are not good. Jesus told his disciples they were evil. If the apostles were evil, how much worse are we? We must realize that when we encounter the holiness of God, it should bring about just one response. Worship. You see, when they declare the holiness and they see the holiness of God sitting on the throne, what do they do? They bow down and they throw everything they have of value at his feet and they cry out how he is holy, worthy of all glory and honor and power forever. Do we do that? Maybe a little bit on Sunday morning. We say God is good. God, God is worthy of our praise. Do we throw the things of value towards us, towards him? Or do we keep them because they're really idols? We need to get rid of those idols. God will not put up with any other gods in our lives. He will utterly destroy them. You could sacrifice those idols at his feet willingly and be rewarded for doing so. Or you could have God bring his wrath down upon you. Do not, do not sit there and endure the wrath of God when you don't have to. Come to him in his grace now. Tell you, experiencing the holiness of God will change your life. When you experience God as he's revealed in this chapter and the next, you know that God is worthy of all praise because of who he is. God is worthy of praise because he is holy and eternal. God is worthy of praise because he made everything according to his will. The reason that we don't fly off this earth is mesmerizing to me right now. Do you know how fast we're going through space right now? It feels slow to us, but we're going at thousands of miles per hour. We literally should fly right off the face of this earth and die instantly. We don't because God holds this earth together by his will. He created the word by speaking it by his will. And a day will come where he will send his son to get the bride by his will. That day is very soon. We do not have much time. We will go over in the coming weeks the, the many chapters that, that tell us about the time and the end. But I tell you, I'll give you one last thing to ponder. Jesus said it will happen in one generation. All these signs. I've already told you there are zero signs left before the rapture. I'm telling you, it is not long. It is time to get right with God. 
Stop playing around. Stop monkeying around. Stop pretending you, you could be holy on Sunday morning and, and live a sinner's life the rest of the week and God doesn't notice. God notices everything. Yeah, if you get into your word, you, you pray, and you have that personal relationship with him, it will not be comfortable. He will convict you of sin. But like a loving father who disciplines their child, he does it for your own good so that you'll be made holy and righteous and be able to stand in his presence. If you have experienced God today, I invite you to come down and bend a knee and worship him. For he is worthy. If there's anything in your life you need to confess, come down and do so. Do not wait one more day. We may not get to the ordination next week, folks. We're not promised that much time. And truth be told, I'd rather go home than an ordination. As much as I'm looking forward to it, I'd rather see us all in glory. God is calling us up now to surrender those idols in our life, to get rid of them, to surrender to the, the holiness of God, to stop trying to do it on our own. And as we see... The Father is in control, absolute control. We could try to do things and, and we could try to work hard and, and do all these things that we try to do in our lives. And then at the very last step, we go to God in prayer. Go to God first. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who is sovereign, who is in control. There is nothing He can't do and nothing He won't do for those He loves. Let us pray. Our Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your holiness, Lord. May it drive us to our knees. I thank you that you are just. And I thank you that you have given us mercy and grace, Lord God. I pray those here and those that we know that, that don't know you, Lord, that, they, that you would open their eyes and open their ears and soften their hearts to receive your gospel. May you, may you delay long enough, Lord, for, for everyone to come to know you. I know what your, your word says, Lord, and that, that the time is very near. And to that we say amen, even with what all it means. For we know what's on the other side of the tribulation, Lord. Eternity with you, Jesus. There's nothing we long for more. In your holy name, amen.